get into the, the meat of the Torah. And we're starting to get into Leviticus. And we're going to be diving into a lot of different laws. Um, this is where, in my experience um, in ministry over many years, people begin to disconnect uh, from the story. And I just want to, uh, because people, people often think, well, we've got Jesus. Why do we even need to go back into the Old Testament? In fact, we live in a time when uh, there's, there's great departure from the need to, to study the Old Testament. And I know I speak for Pastor Sylvia and Bernie and Krista when I say that, that we're coming from a perspective that we need the whole counsel of God. And that there's so much here in these verses that we've been reading this week and, and what the Lord really laid on my heart was the foundational piece he lays out in the tabernacle. I want to look at this pattern and the symbols within the tabernacle of Moses and how they lay for us a foundation of Jesus, the, the church and spiritual rhythms and revelation about God that are embedded within this pattern. Um, but I want to share a couple thoughts with you uh, before we dive into the, to the tabernacle itself. In John chapter 1 verse 14, uh, in reference to Jesus, as he's coming in, it says he he came and dwelt among us. And that word there can be actually translated, he tabernacled with us. In fact, some translations um, actually translate it that way. Not, not that he came to dwell with us, but he came and he tabernacled with man. And so that phrase is interesting um, because this is, when we talk about the tabernacle and we talk about these verses that we've been reading about God dwelling with Israel, and his Shekinah glory inhabiting the tabernacle and the intricacy of all of the, the way in which that tabernacle was built, the free will offering, the gold, the silver, the bronze, the fine embroidery, embroidery work, the beaten metals. You've got Betzalel and Oholiab, these two artisans that are actually the first people in the Bible that says are filled with the Spirit of God, are these artisans that are, are crafting the tabernacle. Uh, and so you have Betzalel, for example, his name means in the shadow of the Almighty. And so I just love that uh, that image of God's spirit is, is, is filling this craftsman with wisdom and insight and skill to put together this tabernacle in the middle of nowhere, in the wilderness. And there's so much time dedicated and detail dedicated to communicating why this was given uh, and the very heart of God and, and his heart to come and dwell with mankind. And this is the very mission of Jesus. He came to dwell. He, he tabernacled with us. And we know that in the end of the story in Revelation, we're going to dwell in his presence forever. In fact, that the book of Revelation says, well, there will be no need of sun or moon because God will be our light. And so what we're talking about here is the very dream of God. And unfortunately, many Christians just kind of disconnect when we start getting into the law, and we start getting to the tabernacle, and their eyes kind of glaze over, and I just want, felt from the Lord to make some connections, Lord willing, tonight, where we see Jesus in the tabernacle, and we see ourselves in the story. We see um, some of God's plan laid out for us, and what his invitation is to us, and why he's going to great lengths to disciple Israel. We have to remember that, that this is a group of, uh, number one, it's a mixed company. We have Egyptians that are also left with Israel, which is a fascinating idea in itself that <clears throat> Exodus 12, 38 says there was a mixed company. And so you have Hebrew slaves coming out from slavery. You've got some Egyptians that, that saw God's uh, judgments befall on Egypt, and they come out from that because they want to be a part of 
uh, God's company, and God brings him out in the desert, and he puts him under his covenant. And together, you've got these ex-slave owners with ex-slaves put under God's covenant, and they become God's covenant people. And, and he's, he, he, he has Moses instruct the people to build this tabernacle. And it's uh, instituted after one year there in the desert on Nisan 1, which is the first day of the first month of the Hebrew calendar. And so the, this is not part of my teaching tonight, but I just want to reference it here back to John chapter 1, verse 14 with Jesus. Because sometimes, you know, we, when was Jesus born? Um, was it December 25th at Christmas? Um, no. There's some people that teach he was born in Tabernacles, uh, the, the festival of Sukkot on the Hebrew calendar. But I, I heard Jonathan Kahn put together an amazing teaching. Uh, it took an hour and a half. He went through so much scripture. I would be doing him a great disservice and you a disservice to try and uh, take you through everything to prove it. But I just will summarize it by saying Jonathan Kahn looks at the at the time of Mary's pregnancy, Elizabeth's pregnancy, the time when uh, <clears throat> Elizabeth's husband, the, the priest, Zechariah was in the temple, and, and he basically comes down to, he believes, uh, his theory is that Jesus was actually born on Nisan 1, and that this phrase in John 1.14, that God came and he tabernacled with us, and there's this, this oneness between Jesus and the tabernacle of Moses, and that uh, he was born on the first day of the year, the same day that the tabernacle was built. And we know how God is so precise on the prophetic fulfillment. So I won't belabor that point. I'll just leave it there for, there for you to search out if you want to. I personally believe that this is when Yeshua was born. Nisan won, and there's so much richness in the tabernacle itself. The tabernacle of Moses was patterned after what the Lord showed him exists in heaven. And you can read about that in Hebrews 8, 5, but, and in Exodus 25, 40. You know, Moses spends all this time with the Lord uh, in his presence and the Lord is uh, unfolding this pattern, and the tabernacle, we need to understand, there's a, it exists in heaven, and God is giving Moses a pattern, uh, and, and this is kind of like the idea of on, let it be on earth as it is in heaven, and so the tabernacle is a manifestation of God's um, eternal glory, his this pattern that exists there in God's presence, and God is giving Moses this pattern. He's very, he's very precise with him and says, do everything according to the pattern that I laid out for you um, when you were with me on the mountain. And so we want to look at the, the symbolism in this tabernacle and what it means for us as disciples of Jesus. And so uh, on, the, on the notes there, I have an a image of the the layout of the tabernacle. And so you're going to see as we come into the tabernacle outer courts, the first image that you're going to be confronted with is the brazen altar where they were doing all of the burnt offerings. And so as we come into God's presence, you have to think about God is discipling this group of uh, ex-slaves. He's teaching them his ways. He's unfolding his culture. He's teaching them about who he is, and he's teaching them how to love him, and he's teaching them how to live life together with him. And so there's so much power in what God is, is having them confront every day that I think it's just good to look at a few things as we dive into it. So the brazen altar's right there, and so you're confronted with this idea of sin. Immediately, as you come into God's presence, something has to be done 
for our sinfulness. And we know that with, there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And so I don't know, as you're reading through uh, Leviticus, as you're reading through what was happening at the tabernacle, how much blood is actually being shed. You cannot miss, as you come into the tabernacle, the, the, the visceral image of what the awful cost of man's sin is. How many animals are being uh, sacrificed there and the blood is being splashed against the sides of the altar? And this altar is going to be perpetually burning, according to Leviticus 6, 12. The fire on the altar never goes out. And so there's this idea that as you're coming in there, uh, there the sin has a devastating impact on our relationship with God. Um, death is part of the story since we fell. And God's got a plan of how he's going to deal with our sin. But we, as we walk into it, we cannot miss the importance of the fact that it's going to require a sacrifice you know romans 6 23 is very clear it says the wages of sin is death and so as we come in you can imagine how many people are coming with their sacrifice they've got to bring a perfect animal and so not only is there uh this visceral reality this gory reality of blood being shed for the remission of sins but you're also getting hit in your wallet it's costing you something very personal you're having to take an animal from your flock when you fall short of God's uh, design and you fall short of the law, whether it was intentional or unintentional, there's going to have to be a price to be paid. And you cannot miss the centrality of this as we come into talking about the tabernacle, that there has to be a solution for our sin. And in the time of Moses, that solution involved all of this sacrifice of the animals. And you also have to think about that the idea in Leviticus 6.12, the fire is never going to go out on this altar. And you think about how in the in the New Testament, uh, you know, there's scriptures that talk about how Jesus was for one time and for all mankind, uh, he was sacrificed. And so we know he's the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. And so this idea that his sacrifice is perpetual, it's for everyone, it's universal. If you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, you will be saved. And his blood is the substitutionary atonement for our, our personal sin and our corporate sin as mankind. And so the animals are pointing us to a greater reality in God's heart that one day the lamb was going to come on the scene. And while God is, 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 was willing to accept the, the blood of bulls and calves and goats uh, and, and sheep for a season, they all point to a greater sacrifice that was being planned all along, and we know that that sacrifice is Jesus. And so we're confronted with this reality of our sin separating us from God and the need for blood to atone. The next thing you'd come to is the brazen laver. Um, this is the second object in the uh, tabernacle experience. And so you've got this massive um, laver filled with clean water. And you immediately are having the priests that are going to come and do their ministry to the Lord are washing themselves. Um, and so you, you see this immediate um, imagery of water coming into our spiritual rhythm with God. We know that water is going to represent baptism. Um, it's also going to represent the washing of the word, like from Ephesians 5.26, where Paul admonishes husbands to wash our wives with the water of the word. And I, I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Um, you know, when it comes to 
the natural world, there's nothing more powerful in terms of affecting land and geography than water. Water is more uh, powerful than wind, than earthquakes, than fire. Uh, you know, water, whether it's a, a tiny little gully or a massive river or an ocean or a sea, waterfalls, rain, dew, there's so many different manifestations of water on the planet and they change the geography. Um, and so I, I think the idea here of that Paul's communicating is, you know, he's again likening human marriage to Christ in the church. So just as a husband's going to wash his wife with the water of the word, Yeshua, Jesus is going to wash the bride of Christ with the water of the word. There's this cleansing uh, effect that the water has on the geography of our hearts. You know, just like an ocean will erode and or a river is going to carve into the geography of land. So the word of God, as we're washed by his word, is going to affect our hearts. It's going to change the geography of the human heart. And so this imagery of baptism, this imagery of being washed by the word of God, um, you know, Jesus is said to have the voice of many waters, you know, and I think this is an echo of that, that, you know, the power of God's voice uh, affecting us, the word of God changing us, impacting us, transforming us. Something right here in the tabernacle that we see is the priests are on a daily basis cleansing themselves. They're being washed in the word. We need to be washed by the word of God every day. You have a clear connection to the confession of sin uh, where, you know, we can be cleansed from all unrighteousness, according to 1 John 1, 9, that if we if we're confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. And so here you have a, a rhythm that God is setting up for the priests, and they're going to teach the rest of Israel about this principle, um, the, the importance of confessing our sins to God and to one another so that we can be cleansed. And we need to have it done daily. And so he's instituting these rhythms with his people. Um, you also just have the idea of, you know, the holiness of the priests, that, that there's a cleansing, there's a setting apart. Holiness doesn't necessarily mean perfectly righteous. Holiness is being set apart unto God's service and to his purposes. And so this brazen labor is a setting apart of the priests in order to minister to God. And we're called a holy nation of priests in First Peter, which is an echo of actually what God says in Exodus 19.6. He calls Israel a holy nation of priests. And, you know, Peter draws upon that when he's writing his epistle to call all believers and say, you know, we are a holy nation of priests. We're saved through faith in Christ and we're set apart. We are made holy. Be ye perfect as I am perfect, as the Lord says. And so we're being set apart into our priestly function. And so the tabernacle speaks to us of a lot of these uh, important rhythms and important functions. And so that's the brazen labor. And then you're going to come into the most holy place is the table of showbread. And so bread here is such an important imagery. You know, Jesus uh, quotes Deuteronomy. He says, we don't uh, live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so the table of showbread is going to be unleavened bread. And we know Jesus is the unleavened bread in the Passover. And when he offers us, offers his body in communion and his blood, um, you know, he is instituting himself into the unleavened bread. And so this uh, table of showbread represents, again, a daily reminder that we need the provision of God in our lives. 
um, the blessing of God's word, just like the manna was manifesting every day when the children of Israel were in the wilderness, we are being led through our sojourn on earth, and we need every day a living word from the living God. And the showbread represents uh, that it's we live by that word proceeding from God's mouth, not just by physical bread that we eat. Uh, Jesus takes it one step further in John chapter 6, verses 32 through 35, where he references himself as the bread from heaven. And so he is saying, you need to come and, and eat my body and drink my blood. And he offended a lot of people that were in the audience that day. But he is putting himself right into uh, the, the main need that we have as human beings. He is the true food. He is the real bread from heaven that we need to eat and, uh, and consume in order to have true life. Um, you know, and, and so he's, this bread represents, I believe, Jesus. And uh, I want to pause really quickly and just echo what, what Jesus says in Luke um, chapter 24, verses 44. And it's interesting, as we're walking through the tabernacle, I wonder if these very scriptures were things that Jesus walked the disciples through, because he says something really interesting in uh, Luke 24, verse 40, 44. He's resurrected, he's meeting with them, he's teaching them, and he said unto them, these are the words which I spoke unto you while I was with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. And so as we look at the Old Testament, Jesus himself, when he's talking to his disciples after the resurrection, is talking about how the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms are all giving us information about Jesus. And so as we walk through this, Jesus himself, I just wonder if he would have walked his disciples through what we're talking about tonight in the tabernacle, that they would see and they would have revelation to perceive Jesus in the Holy Scriptures. Um, the table of showbread, the, you've got 12 loaves there. And so it also represents the tribes of Israel. Um, and in its fullest expression, we know that through Jesus, the gospel of the kingdom has been preached into the Gentiles, and God has been grafting in the Gentiles into the commonwealth of Israel. And so this bread also represents the family of God, represents our oneness and our unity. You know, in John chapter 10, Jesus tells his Jewish disciples, he says, there's another flock that I'm going to go to that's not of this flock, and I'll bring that flock in, and there will be, there will out of the two flocks, I'm going to make one flock, and there'll be one shepherd. And so this idea of oneness and unity is so central. Um, there's so many scriptures in the New Testament where the apostles are over and over again appealing to uh, believers to maintain the bond of peace, to maintain our unity, to war against disunity, division, discord, gossip, malice, wrath, jealousy, competition. Um, and so this bread in the tabernacle not only shows us um, that we need to have the word of God in our life, but it also paints a picture. It's a living picture of our need to dwell together in our oneness in unity with God and with each other. Across from the table of showbread would be the menorah, the lampstand. So you've got the seven, uh, the seven branched lamp in the most holy place. And you've got represents the sevenfold spirit of God, which I won't go into that teaching right now, but you can check that out in Isaiah chapter 11. So it represents the Holy Spirit, also represents wisdom, illumination, and revelation. Um, so you can, you know, I think Paul prays this prayer in Ephesians 1, 
uh, verses 17 through 19, that he's praying for the Ephesian church, that they would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And so all wisdom belongs to God. All revelation belongs to God. And this lamp in the, uh, in the tabernacle represents God's wisdom, his truth, his revelation, his light. Um, you know, in Genesis 1, 3, it was the very first thing, let there be light. God dwells in unapproachable light is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 16. And Jesus says in, in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. And so, uh, you know, he's appealing that we don't walk in darkness, but that we walk according to the light of God, illumination of God. And uh, my final point there on the lampstand is uh, it also represents teaching and instruction that as God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, he gives actually in Malachi, it's a very interesting, um, it's actually a rebuke in Malachi chapter two, verses seven through nine. He's talking to the priests and he's basically saying, um, you have, you, you know, I put my words in your mouth, teaching and instruction belong to the priests, but you've shown partiality to my word. In other words, one of the problems in Israel at the time was the priests weren't teaching the whole counsel of God. And the Lord was rebuking them through the prophet Malachi uh, for only sharing certain aspects of God's word that, that were palatable to them instead of teaching the people all of God's counsel. And so it's interesting that in the tabernacle, as we're talking about, uh, we're a holy nation of priests, that, that every day this priest would be going about their duties they're going to be confronted with the responsibility of the teaching and the instruction of God's word. You know, the, the tribe of Levi was one tribe out of 12, and they were to be the priestly nation, or I'm sorry, the priestly tribe to teach the other 11 tribes how to walk with God. And so they had this incredible responsibility to um, comprehend, internalize, um, walk out, what God's instructions were as to model it and to patiently and gently bring the rest of Israel into this understanding of God's instructions from his word and from his law. And so as the priests are going about their, uh, their daily duties, they're going to see that light and they're going to know, uh, number one, that, that God is light, but that he's giving them that light and charging them with the responsibility to instruct the people. And so the priests are uh, mediating between humans and God, their primary ministry is going to be ministry to the Lord, but they also biblically have the responsibility to instruct the people of Israel. And so that's something for us to think about as we are um, walking through the scriptures that, that who is God putting in our lives, that we are called to shine the light of his scripture and to teach and disciple in our life into greater understanding um, of, of the Lord. And you might remember the breastplate that, that the high priest wears. It's very interesting, too. It's got the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And so he's carrying that breastplate over his heart, which I think is speaking about the priestly responsibility here um, connected to teaching and to interceding and praying for God's people. Um, and, and so I just think that's an interesting image that that high priest had to wear that. Uh, as he's performing his duties, he's got to kind of carry God's people on his heart as he's ministering to God. Uh, so that's that's kind of interesting point too. All right, so the, the last piece here before we get into the Holy of Holies is the altar of incense, which uh, we know, again, we're, we're going back to that idea 
of there's a pattern in heaven that God was unfolding to Moses. And this altar of incense is going to be a fragrant offering before the Lord. It's going to be have a particular oil that's being offered up on this altar. And we know in Revelation 5 verse 8 that uh, as John is being shown heaven, uh, there are bowls that exist before God that are being filled with the prayers of the saints. And so we're, and there's beings that have harps that are there that are singing. And so before God's throne, 24 hours a day, seven days a week is prayer and worship. And so again, as we look at the, the heavenly reality that the Lord is giving an earthly pattern to, the altar of incense represents eternal and continual prayer and worship before the Lord. This fragrance is always rising to God in the tabernacle and, and in the temple as well when we get into Israel uh, as a nation once they're founded. Um, but you have uh, an interesting verse also from Malachi 111 that the Lord says that uh, prayer and worship, the fragrance of prayer and worship is going to arise from everywhere on the earth. Malachi 111, that this reality that's in the tabernacle here that he's giving Moses, um, that is ultimately going to become the nation of Israel when they're in the promised land in the temple, uh, through the gospel uh, and through the sacrifice of Jesus, ultimately you're going to have uh, worshipers in, in spirit and in truth in everywhere on the earth, a remnant from every tribe and tongue. And so this altar of incense represents um, the prayer and worship coming from the hearts of God's people uh, in line and in partnership with the same worship that's taking place in the heavenly realms around God's throne right now. And so we are being um, a, given an example, uh, a rhythm. And again, the Lord is discipling the nation of Israel into these truths that every day they're being, they're being confronted with and being taught uh, the values that God has. Uh, let it be on earth as it is in heaven. One final thought is that this prayer uh, and this worship, it, it represents, number one, I mean, God is, he's worthy and he's holy. And so he is due all of our worship and all of our praise. Um, but this also, this communion with God, this intimacy with God through prayer and through worship is leading us into, I believe, what Jesus is really talking about in John chapter 15, which is at the very heart of this idea of the tabernacle. Jesus says, uh, abide in the vine. You're just the branches. You remain in me, abide in my word, remain in my love. And, and this is the very uh, invitation of God wanting to tabernacle and dwell with mankind, is that this generous, hospitable, holy God is inviting sinful men and women to abide in his presence night and day, that we can have this relationship with our God who wants to tabernacle with us. You can think about Paul writing uh, that your body is the temple of God in Corinthians. You can think about Paul uh, in Ephesians 2, talking about we are jointly being fit together as the house of God, living stones being joined together. And so the corporate body of Christ is also likened unto uh, the tabernacle or the temple. And so you can look at this as an individual, that you're the temple of God. You can look at this corporate, that we are the body of Christ. We are the, the house of God's Holy Spirit now. Um, but this invitation that's going out to all mankind, to every tribe, every tongue, to love God, worship him, abide in the vine, and allow his, uh, you know, his life to flow through us. 
These are all concepts that are um, set forth as an example in the altar of incense. Um, I want to spend just a minute here on the veil. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, that there's a veil that's separating um, the holy place from the holy of holies. And this veil is important at this stage. You know, God is, he is, his presence is over, his Shekinah glory is over the Ark of the Covenant. He is dwelling with his people, but he still is separate. And this veil is separating the, the people from God's presence, except for one day a year where the, the high priest would go in to the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat to atone for the national sins of Israel. And so this veil represents, uh, again, God's holiness, and that sin cannot be in God's presence. And it, God's, again, communicating his love. He wants to dwell with his people, but he's also, in a very uh, real, in a severe way, highlighting that, that, that sin is keeping us apart. But he's got a plan, and, and again, you know, uh, you think about when Jesus is crucified and the veil is torn in two in the temple. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Like when we usually read the word veil, we think about like a, br a bridal veil, which is a very thin piece of uh, material. But the veil in the, in the Bible times, I just want to read a couple quotes that will highlight what this veil actually was. Okay. This is from, the Mishnah, which is uh, a Jewish oral, oral law, Gamaliel says uh, the veil was one hand breadth thick, which is about four or five inches. It was woven on 72 rods, and over each rod were 24 threads. Its length was 40 cubits, and its breadth was 20 cubits, made by 82 women, um, and it took 300 priests to immerse it, to clean it. And so you're talking about a, a veil that is um, stretching from the floor to the ceiling, a four or five inches thick, as thick as my hand. And that is the curtain that was torn in two when Jesus was crucified. And you can just talk about how Jesus is saying it's, it's finished, that he's expressing this burning heart in God's heart uh, for us to be able to come into his presence, you know, and, and we can come boldly. The, the, the author of Hebrews says we can come boldly into the throne of God because of the blood of Jesus. You know, we can come in to his very presence because that veil has been torn now through the death and uh, sacrificial death of, of Jesus Christ and his resurrection for us. Um, and you can read about that in Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, finally, you're going to come to the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. Um, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here because this is, we've already been talking about it, but the, the author in Hebrews, Hebrews 9, 7 through 14, talks about Jesus is, is being made the superior high priest and his blood has been sprinkled on the Mercy Seat forever. And so the pattern that, that we have in the tabernacle that is being uh, daily, weekly, monthly, and annually walked out by Israel is discipling them into this reality of the need for blood to be on that mercy seat. Um, and so I, that this is a sign that, you know, Paul talks about the law being a guardian or a tutor until Christ came. 
So this tutor, the law, the Torah, was to teach God's people about Jesus. And then when he comes, that they would recognize him. And so, you know, the author of Hebrews is writing to Jewish believers that are leaving the faith because they're under persecution. And, and the author is appealing to them to maintain loyalty in the new covenant and, and to persevere and endure. Don't go back to the old covenant. Uh, he's, he's arguing Jesus is the superior high priest. We have a superior sacrifice and a superior covenant in every way. Um, and so as we look at the ark, this is God's very presence. This is the, the very centrality of uh, his, his heart. Um, it also represents God's covenantal faithfulness. You think about what's in the Ark of the Covenant. You've got the Ten Commandments. You have the uh, manna. You've got Aaron's rod. And this is just to be uh, this uh, demonstration and a, and a symbol of God's covenantal faithfulness to the generations um, that he's carried the, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel on his heart. Now he's carrying the nations on his heart. And God is always faithful. He's eternally faithful. And so the Ark of the Covenant represents his presence and his faithfulness. And so I'm going to pause there and come back. Um, so it's about 8.15. Um, I have a couple questions just for us, but I want to pause and just allow anyone that would like to comment on, I know I covered that, you know, there's a whole lot more to be said. I just gave the 50,000 foot flyby, the parallels between the tabernacle that we're reading about in Exodus and how that lays the foundations for who Jesus is and his ministry as high priest and the Lamb of God. So I want to pause and just invite anyone that would like to comment or uh, contribute on this topic. And then I have a couple questions to go into our discussion time. So I'll open up the floor. Anyone have any thoughts? When you were talking about the labor, my thoughts went to Psalm 24. It's an invitation to bring the king in at the end but said the earth is the lord's and the fullness thereof the world and they that dwell in it but it's the second verse that really got me for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers from the earliest times rivers and seas were means of travel and uh, to bring things to it but god had established it at creation on seas and in rivers this is his way of doing business and it's so easy to get caught up in the things of this world because the enemy always targets those and uh, because if he brings defilement uh his agenda it it, it brings us to a place where uh, the waters won't cleanse build a bile and God's going to come and he's going to clean up the river I have watched with fascination there was that derailment and uh, down in the states uh these chemicals and uh just the irony is it's East Palestine Ohio <laughs> and it's it's defiled the waters and they're saying oh it's safe to drink and meanwhile, the birds are dying, the fish are dying, the vegetation is dying. And said, oh, it's safe. But it's his water that cleanses. It's his water 
that brings refreshing. A friend here in, in, in Canada, his older brother is actually in Turkey and working with the development af after those earthquakes. And they actually, one of the teams they were working with pulled this Turkish child out and she talked about a man in white who gave her bread and water. Come on. <laughs> Pulled her out and she had, they don't know how she, and she was in there for over 120 hours. She was there for over five days. God. Wow. I love what you're saying, Marie. You know, it makes me think too. I listened to a uh, teaching from Derek Prince the other day. He was talking about water and, and he was saying that he was in prayer one time and the Lord showed him uh, this pure spring water you know waters of uh, 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 living waters you know yeah. that are burst forth and the gospel is likened to that living water and uh in this in this uh experience that Derek Prince was having he was shown this pure spring water bubbling forth and this clean beautiful water being handed out to people and then there's a group of people that are injecting the water with poison and with toxin and handing that out and it was like the lord was showing him these are like the false teachers um, that are polluting the gospel, that are adding uh, something to the living water that God gave us that is not healthy for people, and it's making people spiritually sick. And so as you're talking about that derailment in Ohio, um, you know, and we're talking about how, like you said, God is communicating, he's, his spirit is brooding over the waters. You know, later on, as you, to your point, the mirrored labor is going to actually be called the bronze sea. Uh, you know, there it's called the sea uh, in, in the temple. And so this idea of water and the gospel and, you know, this uh, idea that it's living waters that God's giving mankind, we've got to be careful what we add to it or what we subtract from it. Um, and that, that the, the gospel itself is is being used in over history and in different ways can be can harm people if uh, and and the anger of God coming against false teaching and any kind of mixture that we you know he's given us his word he's taught us he's shown us the way and we 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 dare not deviate to the left or to the right you know it just reminds me again uh you know when the scripture talks and says over and over again in fact that God is holy it is important when we can see the old and how it relates to the new, and it brings us back to that same mindset. He is the same. Who's the same? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he was holy then. He's holy now. And so there is a preparation and there is a need to understand that so that as we're going into the very presence of God, into the Holy of Holies, we remember he's the same God and what Jesus did. When you talked about all the blood, I'm just going to have to go here for just a minute. You know, when I've been in places where there's a dead animal and blood is there, that is just horrible. So can you imagine all the blood that was being poured out, shed out, sprinkled out, all of that, all day in the morning and the evening, oh, what it must have been like? Gives me reason why I praise Jesus. I thank Jesus that I don't have to go get my own ram, goat, bull, and sacrifice that unto the Lord. Now it is the fruit 
of my lips. It is my worship, but Jesus did all of that, all of that. And so we see Christ and the fulfillment of what he did. And therefore it causes me to say, blessed be his name, because God is the one that chooses the season, the time, and the place in which we are to be born. And he chose for me to be born after Christ so that I wouldn't have to get my own lamb bull to be sacrificed for my sins. Amen. And I'll just echo, um, I just love all of the symbolism that we find in this that you just broke down so wonderfully um, because it is all pointing to Jesus. You know, it really uh, shows us that that is what he was doing. He had you know, he was showing Israel through this process what to get ready for, because even when John the Baptist points him out, he says, behold, the Lamb of God. And they would have known exactly what that means. You know, they knew what the Lamb of God was through how this whole thing was instituted with starting at the Passover. You know, that would have come to mind. And then the fact that they're doing this and the fire is never going out and he's being called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, you know, which is actually what that whole process was to do for them, right? Um, so it was identifying him as um, the fulfillment of the scriptures. And so all of those elements are so amazing, just like you said, because it's the copy. It, you know, the Bible tells us that these things were just a foreshadow. All of these things we're reading about in the Old Testament of what was to come, which is also why it's, as you said, so important that we look back into them, even when Jesus um, you know, uh, ascent or not before he ascended and he was with the disciples on the way to Emmaus. And it says that he unlocked the scriptures for the disciples. And he re basically revealed himself through the writings of the prophets and was revealing where he has, where he was from the beginning through the entire word, because in the beginning was the word. <laughs> so praise the Lord. That's so good. Yeah, if you guys want a companion, just two chapters to read in Hebrews, chapter 9 and 10, will bring all that we talked about tonight right, right into your, your heart in a fresh way. We go into Leviticus, and we're looking at all these ordinances. Ultimately, you know, Jesus summarizes the law and says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And upon these two commands, hang the rest of the law. And that as we, ultimately, God is teaching uh, a nation how to, uh, about himself and about how to, how to live together. Um, and it gets really practical in Leviticus. It's one of my favorite books. It's kind of weird. I really like Leviticus. I mean, the Lord is talking about how to, where to dig a latrine. Um, you know, he's talking about our sexual relationships, family relationships. He's talking about mold in your house. He gets like really, really, really gritty and real. And that, there's something about him giving us that level of himself where it's like he knows how broken and how um, sinful we are. And yet he's coming near to, to us because we need him. And it's like, he's stooping down to help us out. And so Leviticus is just full of these amazing uh, principles of just how God is really giving a culture and his ways you know, and uh, one of my favorites is he tells some, he, he says, uh, you know, when you're walking along the way and uh, your neighbor's donkey is in the well on the Sabbath, I want you to stop and help him get his donkey out of the well. 
And it's like you, he made it a law because if he didn't actually specify it, we could just walk on by our neighbor. And so in the, in the act of giving the law and saying, I, I want you to do this and not that, I don't want you to walk by that. I want you to engage and help your neighbor because he's made it a rule. He's now teaching us how to love our neighbor. And so from that one law, you can then extrapolate out, well, if his donkey's in the well, do I help him out when his horse is in the well? Should I help him out when his daughter's in the well? Should I, you know what I mean? It, God is basically teaching out of giving that one law. He's expanding and giving us his heart and saying, I want you to take care of each other uh, as you're going about your day. Even on the Sabbath, I want you to help each other out. And so I just love the Torah and how it teaches us about God and, and how to walk with one another. I'm amazed at what Jesus is doing this year. I um, just personally feel like there is a change in me and my body, uh, in my mind, soul, spirit, and just he really is. It's he's so tangible and he is. I feel him just coming down to meet us where we are when we cry out for insight and repentance and just that intimacy with him. I, I'm amazed by him. I have prayed. I've had body pain for many years and I have felt something change in my body, like that he has literally repositioned my pelvis, has aligned my spine. And I'm, I'm just so grateful. I'm just amazed by him. <laughs> and he yeah. is doing so many things. He's moving so mightily. And he's given us eyes to see and ears to hear and to see through what he's doing. Uh, I'm amazed. I'm grateful for our family. I pray for each of us by name. But one thing that I hear him saying is, I just want to be with you. I just want to be with you. Come to me. Talk to me. Tell me everything. I already know, but just tell me everything and abide in me. And that is what I'm doing. And I just cannot believe what he's doing to me with my body. It's something that I've prayed for for many years. And he's a miracle worker. But more than that, just sitting at his feet and loving him and seeing him in all things. Wow. I'm just so grateful for what he's done for us. We don't deserve anything, but in his kindness and mercy, he loves us so much. Anyway, I just wanted to share that that's what I see the Lord doing in me, and I'm sure many of us. And I just wanted to praise his holy name. Yes. I just want to say that I'm a person, I'm a former children's pastor, and I have a Bible of religious education degree. And just the depth of your teaching, um, I got jealous. <laughs> and I wanted to hear something from God for me. And I did hear a couple of things from Leviticus. May I have two minutes to share them? Of course. Okay, one of them was about Aaron's outfit where he had the 12 stones and then he had the, the, the tribes of Israel engraved on his shoulder. And just that's how we're to carry. Like I was thinking that like they were engraved twice, basically. And I was thinking that the government 
of the Lord, the government is on the Lord's shoulder. So I was thinking that this was for government. And then I was thinking that just um, just the stones were- And the, over the heart. And, and, and over the heart, but the heart <laughs> was more personal, was more family, right? The family of God. So there was a government in the family that Aaron was taking both before the Lord. And it just challenged my own prayer life. Do I have something on my shoulder? Do I have people engraved on my heart that I'm to take before the Lord? Mm. So it's just a challenge to me. And the other thing was a challenge when I was real realizing all those bulls that were sacrificed. Well, the God Baal is in the form of a bull. So when Israel sinned, what they actually did was instead of sacrificing what they were supposed to sacrifice, they worshipped it. And that was just a really challenge to me, too, because am I worshipping things that I should be sacrificing to God? Wow. And that was just so just because I was jealous of you guys because you, you your insights are just awesome. I just and I was jealous and I just wanted something to challenge. And so that's just what I go. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Don't don't worship what you should sacrifice. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Beautiful. And uh, I just want to say, Chantel, thank you for sharing that beautiful testimony. Just wanted to circle back and honor you and praise God. We're rejoicing with you in what he's doing and in and, and others' lives as well. He's so good. So thank you for, for sharing that. Beautiful. Amen. Thank you for that revelation, Catherine. Really beautiful. Um, and this is why, this is why we do this is, you know, we're all learning and God's the teacher and we just get to sit in his presence and learn from each other and share. It's wonderful. You know, before there was microbiology, there was the Torah. And it's one of the fascinating studies. If you want to go on a little rabbit hole, just look it up online. There's tons of articles from science scientists who are marveling at the fact that the information that God gave Moses in regards to clean and unclean foods and cleanliness and uh, the law, how it is all, he's giving him information without explaining microbiology to Moses. He's telling Moses, do this, don't do that. Tell the people, don't do this, do this. And in that, it's a proof of the authority of the of that this is this is a divine source. Um, you know the the practices of the Egyptians, where of, of course the Hebrews are coming out of Egypt, so there would have been familiar with the medical practices of the Egyptians, who were kind of the leading experts of their day, and and we know what those practices were historically, and they were not the practices that God gave uh, Israel in the wilderness with the Torah, and so He's unfolding divine wisdom, divine and divinely inspired instructions. Before we understood anything about microbiology, disease, germs, their God is telling Moses to tell the people. Um, so that's just a little, you know, I, I've studied that a little bit. I'm no expert, but would, if you guys are interested, it's out there. All that information's out there to, uh, to consider. So great stuff, Sylvia. You know, the other thing I want to say is that I joined the Army in 1984, went to basic training, and then advanced individual training. You know what God shares in the Bible about, you know, if you need to go to the bathroom to relieve yourself, you need to do this. You know, while we were waiting on the porta potties to show up, they trained us how to use those things. So when I was reading it in the Bible, I'm like, 
my goodness, we still use this in the Army today. In 1984, I retired in 2012. I'm pretty sure in 2023, they're still telling soldiers. Why? Because, you know, the, you don't want to walk in somebody else's stuff. So you had to dig that hole that was six by six inches, you know, and if yeah, keep the place clean. Sanitary reasons. Nobody, you know, when you step in dog stuff, that's bad enough, but human stuff is worse. That's all I'm saying. Our God is an on time and he's a now God. Hallelujah. Glory. <laughs> Just laughing over here. Y'all cracking me up right now. <laughs> <laughs> I may have to edit some of this. Who knows? <laughs> but laughter is good medicine. Praise the Lord. Amen. Yeah. What did you talk about last night? Well, poop and <laughs> <laughs> some other things. <laughs> it's in the Bible. It's got Bible on it. Amen. The Lord talked about it. Praise God. Praise We're God. just saying those things that he gave back then are still being used and they're effective now. Amen. And so if that little thing, again, when we're in field problems and field exercises, we were still using it and it was effective then, you know, the army is over 200 and some odd years old. So if it is, just think about the more serious things that he gave us for guidance. If we follow that how much it would enhance the quality of our lives and that of society. Well, that is actually a really good point because there really are some, you know, specific things, just like Jed, you were pointing out earlier, that God broke it down. And like you said, he got into the nitty gritty of if this happens, here's how you handle it. And we were actually in the car, Scott and I, and uh, we were listening to a, one of the day's portions of scripture through the audio app. So it was reading it to us as we were driving and they were talking about skin diseases. Well, my husband's got a little white thing that's come up on his face and it's been there for a while. And so I've been worried about it, trying to get him to go to the doctor. He does have another one that came up. And so I'm like, Oh, what in the world? And so we're just worried about it. But then I'm we're listening to this and it's talking about if you have a white thing come up on your skin and it doesn't have this in it, you know, then it's, it's basically going to be fine, but it's just amazing because literally I was like, well, the Lord's telling us right here how to handle it. You know, otherwise we're going to quarantine you for seven days. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. He is the all wise God. I think the Holy Spirit has just been moving through each one of you as you present every Monday. So very, very grateful for your teachings. They've all been wonderful, but something that struck out to me and it's just a little simple thing was that, um, and I can't tell you exactly where it was, but when we're reading through Exodus, there's a place where it says something about don't start a fire, don't start a fire on, on the Sabbath, don't kindle a fire on the Sabbath. And it hadn't hit me at that point, because when, when you go later on in, in the scriptures, and Moses is asking the Lord what to do with the man who goes out and gets the wood. And so it just occurred to me, it's like, well, they were told. It was very clear, don't kindle a fire. So I always wondered why he wound up getting stoned. And, you know, we, our father knows. But 
in my mind, it was such a willful disobedience that he literally was going out to get fire, mm. uh, to get fire wood, that there wouldn't have been any other reason for him to get wood on that day. And so um, it just kind of tied in that little piece to have seen the, seen what he said not to do, and then seeing that this person went out and did it. You know, the, the Lord is communicating not just this, what's happening to Israel, and it's not, it's not just a historical record, but through the word of God, this is teaching and instruction and examples for all of humanity to consider. And so there's things that are happening that are not just about this man who collected the firewood on this one time, but it's a principle that the Lord is highlighting for all of mankind to learn from. And I, I say that to say, because, you know, you might remember, uh, you know, Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments and there's idolatry at the base of the mountain and they're worshiping the golden calf. And, you know, 3000 people end up dying for that idolatry. And the Bible says the letter of the law kills. And that's the Hebrew festival of Shavuot is the celebration of the giving of the word of God, the giving of the law. 3,000 people die. But Shavuot is also Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit's poured out, and 3,000 people are born again on Pentecost. And so you have this beautiful symmetry. The giving of the, of, of the, word, of the law, there's death. Uh, and yet the Lord has made provision for pouring out the spirit, which is going to lead to life through, through our faith in Christ. And so some of these uh, examples that are so severe, we look at it, we really like, wow, that's intense. I think part of it is the Lord is communicating for all of mankind to understand these principles um, and that, and to highlight our need for a savior, to highlight our need for the forgiveness of sins and to highlight our need ultimately for Jesus, like we've been talking about all night. He is, everything is pointing to him as we read through these, uh, these stories and we can learn so much as we go. So I appreciate what you shared there, Lois. And, um, you know, for a long time, I was, I was very much like that where I was reading through Leviticus, like, why am, why is this in here? And my eyes are glazing over. And I just encourage us as we get more revelation, just asking the Holy Spirit, help me to see Jesus in these, in, in this, help me to see your heart, help me to, to, to walk um, with you through this and, and what do you have for me in today's reading? Um, so awesome stuff. Thank you, Lois. I also just want to mention a verse because it brings us to the new Testament, which also ties us back to what you're speaking of right now in the old Testament in Romans eleven twenty two, it says, notice how God is both kind and severe. He is severe towards those who disobeyed, but kind to you if you continue to trust in his kindness. But if you stop trusting, you will also be cut off. So we see it again. I mean, God is the same today, tomorrow, and forever. So yes, he's made provision, but this is why Jesus said, but you must abide in me because any branch that does not um, remain is going to be broken off, he says, and thrown into the fire. And I think it means exactly what he says. You know, because it's right here. Notice and consider the kindness and the or the or the goodness and the severity of God. It's a it's a contrast and a balance. But we see that God's heart is for us, that it is absolutely for us. And he has gone to every extent to make a way for us and to provide and bring provision to bring us close to him. And all we simply have to do is just respond and submit to that and just 
receive, receive that and stick with them, you know, just keep trusting, keep believing, you know, and this is why I believe we have those admonitions in the scriptures for the times of the end, you know, to persevere, to press on, you know, to, um, to keep going, to not lose heart, you know, to continue on so that we can receive the crown, you know. Good stuff, Krista. And, and to your point, you know, as we were talking about Hebrews 9 and 10, this is really at the heart of what the warning that the author gives them is like, because people are abandoning their faith in Jesus to, to avoid persecution. And so he's saying, hey, you need to stay the course and stay faithful. And he talks about trampling, you know, what if you if you turn away and you trample again, the son of God, right? There's no there's no forgiveness for that. If you depart and you you know you're you're you're, you're resacrificing Jesus. If you, and so we're responsible for the revelation that we have, um, you know. And and so re, just like you said, Krista, like remaining faithful uh, and walking out and trusting God and remaining in His kindness, um, as opposed to departing from that faith and turning our, our backs on Him when we've been given that revelation. And it makes me think too of the example. I think we've covered it before, but you know, Aaron's sons who are, are burned, um, you know, the fire of God consumes them because they're burning strange fire. And it's so intense. And it's like, man, golly, God says, Aaron, you can't even, you can't even mourn for your sons. Like, wow, God, this is intense. But then you realize that his sons were with him. They were up on the mountain and they were with, they were in God's presence and God is unfolding uh, this revelation. And so you have to just believe that in that place, he's giving so much revelation to them that they're actually, they're really responsible for what God gave them there um, and showed them. And I, I have to believe that that's one of the reasons why that penalty was so severe is they just knew, they knew better and they chose, they chose to disobey anyway, for whatever reason. Um, so these, some of these stories are really intense, but you know, they're in there for a reason. They're in, for, in there for us to learn and, and, and walk out our faith in Christ. Uh, even when God was saying on the Sabbath, it was a day of rest. He said, and none of the things that are necessary for your survival are you to do. He even gives the example of they were not to go and get firewood. So it was blatant rebellion. And it was showing that this individual did not trust God. He trusted himself. And when you were both sharing, you both mentioned trust, trust, trust. So what God is saying is we are to trust him with our basic needs and necessities. He will provide them. He would not tell them not to get firewood when he knew that they would need to stay warm. The fire was there by day. Amen. I'm sure uh, the fire was there at night. They knew his presence was there. He, could, he would keep them warm during the day. So it's an indication of taking it and doing it your way because you trust yourself more than you trust God. God, again, was demonstrated, trust me for the simple things. I know what your needs are. I will provide them. And then the other thing is, you know, Jesus said this that is profound and think about it and ponder it for a minute. He says, I do nothing except but what I've seen my father do and what I've heard my father say. Now, oftentimes we quote that when we're talking about the miracles that he did. He fed the 5,000, the 4,000, he healed the blind, all that. But he's talking about from beginning to the end, 
He's always been with the father. I have people say, well, you know, these things, they're just not that way. When we talk about judgment, when we talk about the day of the Lord and, and the wages of sin and God bringing his righteous judgments, I have people who have told me that is not Jesus. You know, even when Jesus gave the parable about the talents, five, two, and the one, and what he did with the one, because he hid it and, and he didn't do anything with it and he comes back and even Sunday when I was doing my Sunday service the lady said that is harsh and Jesus is not harsh and I said ma'am it's Jesus who's doing the speaking let the Bible tell you who God is instead of you deciding who God is notice that Jesus is saying that when the um, owner came back he did not dispute with that servant who took that one talent and said, I knew you were a harsh man, that you gathered where you didn't plant, you did this, you did that. He never disputed that fact and said, that's not me. You're speaking ill of me. He said, if you knew that about me, then why didn't you at least take it and place it in the bank so you could get some interest on it? Amen. Again, the Bible tells us who God is. And we are to come into agreement with that. And we're to understand when Jesus said, I do nothing except for what I've seen my father do. It's not talking about while he was physically just walking on the earth. He's talking about from beginning to the end. And what was done in the Old Testament, that's the same way. We see that in Revelation because he's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Here's what I challenge us all to do. Let's get to know the God of the Bible instead of the one that maybe we've been told about, taught about, or even conceived in our own hearts and imagination. What God says he will do, that's exactly what he'll do. And that was the old and the new. He's the same. And we can trust him and trust him even when it doesn't make sense. The guy that gathered the wood was demonstrating his lack of trust, which means lack of faith. And I need to do this and take care of my own self. Good stuff. Well, thank you everybody for tonight. Um, I'm just going to say a word of prayer and we'll close up for this week and we'll join together next week as we continue our journey together through the scriptures. So, Heavenly Father, we, uh, we just lift up the name of Jesus, and we listen to what Pastor Sylvia said. We want to know the God of the Bible. And, Lord, we just confess that uh, we see in part and we know in part. We need your Holy Spirit to give us wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Christ. And so as we talk about these things, um, Lord, just pray that you would impart wisdom to each heart, discernment that your word word would uh, be proved true and every person be proved a liar, Lord. We just, we don't need our opinions. Uh, we, do, we need your living word. We need the bread. We were talking about the show bread. We need that word from your lips, Lord, not just physical bread. We need the bread from heaven. And uh, so we just thank you for each person that, that came around uh, tonight and those that couldn't make it we pray your blessings on them, on each one, on every family represented, and that as we continue to go on this journey, Lord, you would teach us, instruct us, encourage us, exhort us, challenge us, comfort us, and uh, 
just speak into our lives. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing and for the testimonies that are coming forth, uh, like the one that Chantel uh, shared earlier. We just thank you for what you're doing. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, and we give you all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise and thanksgiving. Uh, amen. Amen. Let's praise the Lord. And so I want to encourage everyone as well to just um, join us through the week if you're able to come back on to Tour of Truth and watch the breadcrumb videos that are a companion to your daily reading. So if you didn't know about that, just want to make sure everybody is aware of that. You just click on the bread uh, or today's reading and it'll give you the whole week. Each day you can click and you'll get a video of either myself, Pastor Jed or Pastor Sylvia. And um, we're just going to be chatting with you about what the Holy Spirit has revealed to us in that day's scripture. And then, of course, we'll come back and meet with you on Monday. So shalom, shalom. We'll see you next Wednesday prayer, Wednesday prayer. Yes, yes. And Wednesday prayer. So day after tomorrow, if you're able to make prayer, we want to invite you to that. There's four opportunities. You can find those times on the website at tourofruth.com. There's morning, afternoon, late afternoon and evening. Um, and so we want to welcome and invite you to participate. And we really want to encourage you as well, because really prayer is the prayer is the foundation for us. It is it is the place where, you know, God moves on our behalf. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And, and we're called to pray. We're called to cooperate and join the Lord in what he's doing right now on the earth and especially in the day and the hour that we're living. So, you know, when, when a prayer meeting is called often in church, it's usually the least attended. And that's the sad thing is because prayer is the thing that makes the difference in the earth. And so we want to, again, just encourage you with those words to just think about that. Ask the Lord if he'd have you to come. And if you've never been a part of a prayer meeting, don't be intimidated by it. Again, you know, you can jump in when you feel led by the spirit. And so we just want to encourage you to join us. So shalom, shalom. Shalom, shalom. Shalom, shalom. Shabbat Thank you. Shalom, shalom.